Jeff Boyardee is Poe's mentor. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, it was always going to be Leia. Could have been Baby Yoda. <laughs> wow, what a huge oversight. There's just a hole in the Death Star. Like, what the heck? You know, just like board that up or something, you know? Then jumped onto Wikipedia and was like, oh, there it is. I refused to get on the Wook, um, as, as Jared lovingly refers to it. You're listening to the Star Wars Archives, a Utini.com Patreon-exclusive podcast. Your regular deep dive down the rabbit hole of the Star Wars universe. Discussion, analysis, Easter eggs, and obscure books you've never heard of. And now, here are your hosts, Jose and Trevor. Hello there, this is episode 4 of the Star Wars Archives, a Utini podcast where we take some random Star Wars topic and explain the living benefit poodoo out of it. I am Jose, aka Joxie in the Utiniverse. I have watched all Star Wars canon movies and TV shows. I have read 38 Star Wars books, and I own only 10 of them. Uh, my name's Trevor, I'm a keeper of a timeline pages over at Utini.com. I've spent my entire life consuming Star Wars media, and I currently own 927 Star Wars books and graphic novels. 150 comics, 70 magazines, 26 video games, and four Star Wars Christmas jumpers. Ah. <laughs> and you're wearing one right now. I am wearing one right now. I remember, I think I wore this to the premiere of Force Awakens. Which premiered that was almost exactly five, five years, years ago. Absolutely crazy. We, we, um, we recorded the, um, a Bail Organa Spotlight episode last week with Eric, which will go out next week. And I think I made a mistake in that. I said it was only four years ago that we'd started having content. But it was, yes, I can make mistakes. But it was five years ago. Yes. <laughs> and in five years, we've had five movies, uh, The Mandalorian, final season of The Clone Wars, all these comics and books. It's absolutely nuts. I mean, this year alone, just, uh, I mean, the comment, the content that has come out and the announcements of everything that is about to come, it's... It's just impressive. And, and I, th- I really think we'll, we're going to cover so much of this, but this second season of The Mandalorian really has been a culmination of everything they've done since The Force Awakens, both in the movies, in the books, mm-hmm. in the comics. It really did all come together, especially in that final episode. Yes, th- yes, it did. And I know how excited you are to get right into it because I saw I took a pick at your notes and there's a lot of stuff in there to cover. <laughs> um, I mean, we did do an episode um, only on the first two episodes of this season for The Mandalorian, right? A podcast episode. And we only covered two, two things. things. Yeah. <laughs> Spiders and... Uh, yeah, a, a tree spider and a dragon. <laughs> right. And how we're going to then cover... Six episodes of The Mandalorian in just an hour, um, or just over an hour. Um, I mean, remains to be seen, but we'll do our best. We're, g- we're going to drop some information bombs, but I'll make them as small as possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, today's episode, as we are already talking about it, it will be a deep dive into the um, extended universe influences of the last six episodes of The Mandalorian Season 2. So, um, Trevor, uh, just remind our listeners what we're doing here, how we put these episodes together, like what's the format? So we try to keep everything fairly unscripted between me and Jose. Um, You know, it depends on what we're covering as to how much research either one of us need to do. Jose will do research if he needs to. 
I try not to. I leave myself a few notes to remind myself which books or comics or whatever to talk about. And we could talk about anything. Legends canon, books, comics, miscellaneous newspaper clippings, something off the back of a cereal packet. Who knows it? Um, and we're going to throw in a few regular features and hopefully keep you both entertained and informed over the next hour. That's right. And as always, we will be throwing in a fake fact in somewhere in the show to keep you on your toes. Fact check. Fact check. Fact check. This is a fake news alert. Let us know on Discord or Twitter if you spot it. Uh, in case you didn't spot it on the last episode, Trev told us that Ahsoka's homeworld was the planet Gorse, when, of course, everyone should know that it is, in fact, Sheila. So. I love the fact. So, in our notes, I was the one that wrote down, well, of course, everyone knows that. I didn't know that until I looked up the answer for this show. <laughs> So it's easy well, to learn new things. Yes. Well, now everyone will know because we know everyone is listening to our show. Um, and if they're not, they should because there's a, a lot of good information that you're, you know, you're providing to the whole world. And if you have decided to listen, we're very thankful. <laughs> That's right. So, um, again, we have a lot to cover. So, Trev, I think we should just dive right in. Okay. Go into your, into your deep dive. Let's do it. Okay, so we're starting at chapter 11 because we covered the first two chapters of a season in an earlier episode. Uh, we open up on the planet Trask, where the Mando's going in his beaten old ship. And what we see is Mon Calamari and Quarren living and working together. Now, that in itself, just pure expanded universe. They've got a long history. They come from the same planet of Mon Calamari or Dak to give its official name. I'm not quite sure why they didn't use that planet. Uh, that's something we've spoke about before, about inventing new planets when we've got planets that actually fit the purpose. Uh, but they yeah. also call it an estuary planet, which makes sense. Um, but it was really cool to see these guys working and living together and alongside each other. And the makeup on the Quarrens was fantastic as well. Yes. Uh, the only other place we've seen them is uh, in Jabba's Palace, but this makeup seemed to be a whole step beyond that. And the fact that they're pirates as well. There's a couple yes. of examples of Quarren pirates, uh, noticeably um, Nim from a Starfighter video game and Starfighter Crossbones miniseries from Dark Horse. But this episode, and there's a general in or an admiral in the recent Squadrons video game of Mon Calamari, I can't remember his name, but it shows how they've sort of, they're steering away from a gurgly water accent that have been mm -hmm. associated with Mon Cal's up till now, notably Admiral Akbar and Admiral Radus from Rogue One. Since you're bringing this up now, I did want to ask you you said that their 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 home planet has another name it's not mon calamari no, no moncala or mon calamari i think moncala, i think right? it's moncala yeah moncala right so we have these two species these two races and whatnot living in this one planet how come it is commonly known as moncala and the Quarren get sidestepped and overshadowed by the mon calamari people there is a lot of history regarding that. I mentioned the fact that its official name is Dak. Now, mm -hmm. I wish I could talk more about that off the top of my head. The only thing I can remember is that Dak is its official name. And there's a lot of uh, diving into that in the Legacy series from Dark Horse. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I can't, can't drag out any more information <laughs> from my memory banks right now. Well, I mean, because to me, it does sort of remind me a little bit, right, uh, in Naboo, where we have the Gungans and the humans, and they're just sort of, it's, it's this one planet that seems to somehow have these two species that 
co-inhabit this one planet. However, like, you know, Guggins are most definitely sort of uh, seen as an inferior species to the Naboo humans. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely sort of resentment from the Gungans. And that has been covered before uh, to the point that, you know, Gungans made the deliberate choice to kind of purely live underwater. They're like, fine, let them have a land. We're, we're not going to bother with them. Right. But in this case, I mean, they're both the Mon Calamari people and the Corrin. They both live underwater. Yeah, and we see a little bit of that is it in uh in in the Clone Wars animated series, where they actually go visit their planet and they are underwater. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the uh, the 2015 Marvel Star Wars run sees them go into Moncala as well. That's right. So I mean, you know, you're wondering why. To me, when when I saw them go to this ancillary planet and not the main one, I just assumed that it's so that it would make more sense for there to be more sort of. Um, structures above water because if it was in Moncala or Dak then I would assume that there's going to be more just underwater cities and not so much above water again it's one of these where we didn't see a lot of a planet but it is kind of it's set in a dockyard and you kind of need to yeah. wonder why they need a dockyard <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing that also the the set design of their of the ships on that dockyard really reminded me of an old Marvel uh, comic series. Uh, so this was literally the second Marvel comic arc set after New Hope. So we're talking 1977. And I must have had this in a Star Wars annual or something as a kid because it's never left me. But it's called The Dragon Lords of Drexel. And it's set on, on water, on a water world, you know, and they're proper actual pirates yes. with ships, but, you know, technology as well. And yes. it, it really did seem like there was a lot of influences in this episode from that comic series nice that's awesome yeah we should do and you i'm assuming you do own this comic yeah, right yeah of course yes you have a whole lot of things right behind you there i can see definitely we need to see some of those pictures in there so that we compare it to what we saw in the episode yeah we'll put them we'll put them up on the socials like we always do to try and point you towards the direction of some of the books that we talk about awesome all right so let's keep going but you've got you've got an opinion on quarren haven't you jose <laughs> well so yes yeah, so, i mean they're they're probably a little resentful um because whatever is happening in their home planet against the mon calamari people but like i don't know i mean where are the corin dickheads like they're, <laughs> they're just like terrible people i mean i don't know it's just they're they're not nice in the clone wars animated series i remember them also just sort of being just like angry and you know very easy to just fight against everyone else and in here yeah we get this group of quarren and they're terrible they just threw the baby <laughs> we don't know his name is grogu yet but they just threw him into this like kraken sort of creature i have a theory i have a theory on this go for it so myself dave floney john favreau we're all kind of around the same age right we were all kids watching the original trilogy we probably all played with the same toys if you're of my mm -hmm. generation and you had those toys and those figures, it was a very distinct good guy, bad guy. That's what you played in the playground, mm -hmm. goodies and baddies. You know, that's what you did as a kid, cowboys yes. and Indians. I think it's that. I think in their head, Quarren of the baddies and Moncal of the goodies because that's, yeah. that's how they played with it as kids. I honestly reckon that's the reason. It tracks. It makes sense. And 
but somehow, I mean, they're, they're still sort of co-inhabiting this, this other planet. But yeah, I guess you, you do have the then the Quarren that just tend to lean more towards, yeah, they're just the bad guys. Yeah, I will. And also just when we saw the Quarren before in the original trilogy, they were just in Jabba's palace too, right? So it's even just as simple as that. Like they're already associated from the get-go as being part of just not not the rebels. Yeah, I think um, so. I think Tessic was that Quarren's name, if I remember right. Because he had a story in Tales from Jabba's Palace. Listeners, if Trevor is wrong, please <laughs> let us know. I, Yes, I do want to know every single time that he makes a mistake. And I don't know if how many times that's already happened. But <laughs> I'm sure please let many. me know. Just send me a direct message. I don't want him to know. At the same time, I just want to bring it up live in a future episode. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, uh, so this episode introduces Bogotan. Obviously, that's going to have been discussed to death all over the internet. Mm-hmm. We we could focus on that, but that would be a whole episode in itself. I want to focus on some of the smaller things. So she calls Din a child of the Watch. Maybe it could be an offshoot of Death Watch, who obviously played a huge mm-hmm. part in the Clone Wars, but they were actually introduced in Jango Fett Open Seasons, which is a Legends graphic novel that acts as Jango Fett's origin story. Oh, We're actually going to discuss this one a bit later on in the episode as well. Interesting. I didn't know this. But, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, and uh, Bo-Katan was also a member of the Death Watch at, at one point too, right? At least within canon. I've often said that the Clone Wars isn't my, yes. isn't my area of expertise, but I was of the understanding that Bo-Katan was, she was one of the good Mandalorians, right? She was, but during there was a moment, you know, because her sister, Satine... And she was ruling Mandalore, and I believe during this period of time, then Bo-Katan is you know very much a warrior, and her sister Satine wanted to bring Mandalore to this new era where it's not Mandalorians are not all about fighting and weapons and everything, but Bo-Katan yeah, the kind of pacifist exactly Mandalore. But Bo-Katan believed in that more traditional way of the Mandalore. So I believe that is why she was part of Death Watch, because that's sort of what Death Watch was doing during that time. Once um, Darth Maul... Yeah, this is all full of spoilers, so if you haven't watched The Clone Wars, (laughs) then I apologize, but you should definitely watch it. Um, But once Darth Maul comes in and takes over Mandalore, I think that is when Bo-Katan then realizes that, yeah, let's you know she switches side, because then Death Watch becomes sort of like... Darth Maul's crew, and yeah, then she switches sides, and now she just has her own crew, and I believe uh, okay. that they are called the Night Owls of Mandalore, which I think is supposed to be an all-female clan or a group of female. Okay, clans, that's so interesting. They have their own little like owl sigil or something under under armor. And what about uh, I think the character's name is Axe Wolves from this episode because mm-hmm. there's the three of them. Yeah, so you've got. The two females and the male. Where does he come into it? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think that he had this sigil. So, I mean, she might just be ah. working around with just a few Mandalorians. But, I mean, you know, towards the end of the season, we do only see Bo-Katan and... Uh, what's her name? Uh, well, the Sasha Banks character that I know. I don't remember her character name. Um, no, my, me neither. But it's only the two of them, and we don't see the, the guy there. So it's possible that he might just be with them for that one 
moment in time, and then he went on to do something else because he's not really part of her clan or her like little group. Hey, well, I don't think we're done with Bogotan's story. Definitely so I think we, we've got a lot coming down that's going to fill in these gaps for us. Definitely. All right. So what else do we have in this episode? Uh, well, I really enjoyed the shout out to the Gazanti Cruiser. That was one of the moments when I, you know, kind of cheered to myself in my mm-hmm. seat. Uh, first seen him, uh, Phantom Menace, but quite common in both Legends and Canon. And I always love when these these words, these industries, these companies that I've only ever seen on paper, mm-hmm. I just love hearing them spoke out loud. Yeah, and I, I saw, I remember when when it when the episode aired, a lot of people on the Discord were like, "Oh my God, there's a, there's that cruiser!" And I'm like, Wait, "What are you guys talking about?" <laughs> I believe uh, Andrew from uh, from our team, he was just like super excited to see that, as you know, as, and so were you. But yeah, for all those people that are really into the ships in the Star Wars universe, that was a really cool um, callback to yeah, just the Phantom Menace, right? That's when it shows up. Yeah. But it says a lot about how the rest of the season goes is that the mention of a Gazanti cruiser got that much love. Yeah. I think if that had happened towards the end of this episode, no one would have cared. Mm. No one would have even noticed. Yes. <laughs> Considering how much other information we get well, over the next few episodes. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't... Well, yeah, I mean, we did mention Bo-Katan, but I was not expecting her to show up. And this early in the season. I'd, I'd heard the rumors, and uh, I, I think how it was done was incredible. Yes. And that's another thing we saw a lot during this season is, you know, so first episode, we get that little teaser of Boba Fett right right at the end of the episode, right? And myself personally, I kind of imagine that's what we're going to get. We'll get lots of little teasers and then have to wait Mm -hmm. a while for all this to come or maybe even next season. No, 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 that's not what we had. (laughs) Every episode, they were like, we're not messing around. This is where we're going with the story. We're not, we're not just going to tease you. You're getting it. It's properly. It's so. It's such a confident um, move on their end. Like, oh they yeah, absolutely. knew people were gonna love this, and it was not. Yeah, it it was not a tease. It was not an Easter egg. It's like, yes, we are using these characters, and they are gonna be part of this story, and it's gonna be good. And visually as well. Visually, they looked like they were pulled straight from the Clone Wars yeah. without looking cartoony. It's an incredible design. To me, I mean, Katie Sackhoff, the way she... Put, I mean, so she does voice Bo-Katan in the animated yeah. series, which is really cool that they were able to bring her into the live action. I mean, she is known for her live action role, so she was in Battlestar Galactica. And she just... I mean, the way she moved was so much like they, the way they animated Bo-Katan in the animated series. And you can see that she... I mean, she just owned it. She looked perfect. The way she took off oh, her 100%. helmet, everything. Yeah, and it just—it's everything that happened. Every other episode after this episode too, like they're, <laughs> they're all just great. But this has to be up there on like my top five episodes of this entire show, just because I loved like all the fighting scenes and Bo-Katan just like come, the way she came in. It was just amazing. So I was just so happy to see them, and so excited to have her in the be part of the show. Yeah, they did it really well. And again, she's not going anywhere. We're going to see going to see tons of Bo-Katan, whether it's in books, comics, or live action. You know, she's she's here to stay again. That's right. It's interesting to note that, so this episode was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, who um, also directed an episode from the last season, which was the episode with the repurposed ATST and you know, The Raider. Yes, just coming in through the forest and everything. 
And now on this season, she introduces a repurposed AT-AT as that crane that pulls the Razor Crest out of the water. Yeah, and we saw something similar in Solo as well with the, the same sort of um, at-at. And again, I reckon this is because she played with her dad's toys. That's Yeah, I mean, that's right. Actually, well, in Solo, it is her dad who directed that yes. movie. So yeah. there is that connection there too. But yeah, I mean, I, I she did great um, directing this episode, and I thought it was also you know having a woman uh, direct the episode where it's very much focused I, to right on uh, on Bo-Katan and her group. So I, well done there. Another thing that I thought was interesting was that Mando pays to, in that um, little restaurant. He pays with the calamari flan, which he mentions way back in the first few episodes yep. of the whole series. Money is one of those things that's. It's not consistent in the Star Wars universe <laughs> at all. Is calamari flan, like, was that a term from before the Mandalorian? I'd, I'd never heard of it. But it makes sense that he's using Mon Calamari flan on, on that planet. Yeah. But yeah, so that was, like, another, I thought, nice uh, callback to the first season. And then um, another thing that I thought was really cool was just that they have the... Um, well, they kind of faked us out, right? In, the, in episode two... We see all the spider eggs that uh, Grogu is, or you know, about to eat, and we expect it, expect these spiders to jump right on his face, just like in Aliens. But that didn't happen, and we do get the face hugger uh, bit in this episode. So I thought that was also cool to just they teased us, and now we got it. Yeah, I thought that was really cool because they knew that that's exactly what everyone was going to be thinking when he peered in that egg. That's right, and so they gave it to us. Again, but in a really sort of non-threatening, non- non-threatening way. That's non-threatening. It was kind of fun. And of course, you know, Mando's there to help him out with it. And then the last bit, the last note that I have is something that keeps coming up this season. I don't think they discussed it very much last season, right? But is okay. Dank Farrick. Dank, yeah, Dank Farrick. So like, I, I was listening to the latest episode of Bounty Hunt and... I think Charles has got a real beat in his bonnet about, about this. I, I don't mind it, but I don't think they used it in the previous season of The Mandalorian. I don't think no, I've heard I, it in any other um, Star Wars media. No, not not at all. And we're going to cover a lot of Mando language later. And okay. There is, you know, there is a big history of Star Wars curse words they could have used. That's right. But they chose to invent this version of God damn it or... Yeah. Whatever it might be. <laughs> and then but they just kept hitting us over the head with it. You know, it's like if if they want to come up with a new word then maybe just sort of slowly introduce it. But it was on every episode pretty much, I think, that they mentioned it at least once. And, yeah, and pretty shoehorned in as well. Right. So that was just one thing that I mean I, I, I kinda like it. Yeah, it was a little bit much. Like, okay guys, we we get it. You have a new curse word to use. So it's there, it exists, you don't have to say it on every episode. Maybe that'll be uh, Grogu's first words. <laughs> that would be amazing, actually. I would really <laughs> love that. <laughs> okay, uh, next episode then. So, chapter 12. Uh, early on, we see Grogu dropped off at school, uh, so he skips out on some of the action that follows. Now, this was this was an amazing part for me, and it's not even because of what was being discussed between the main characters. Mm-hmm. But you've got a teaching droid in the background, and you hear her talk about some key geographical information about the galaxy. That's right. She talks about 
she talks about the trade routes of a galaxy for five key trade routes, which is the Corellian Way, the Hydean Way, the Prelemian, the Rimmer, and the Corellian Trade Spine. Exciting stuff, right? Um, but she also talks about how the the various areas of the galaxy are known. Yes. So the galaxy itself kind of works from, if you imagine a central small ball and then larger balls all around it going out mm-hmm. circular. So you've got the deep core of the very center of the galaxy. You've got the core worlds, the colonies region, the inner rim, the expansion region, the mid rim, all the way out to the outer rim. Yes. Now, nearly all of this information originated at West End Games when they were doing role-playing books oh. back before Air to the Empire had even been released. Real, so uh, all this is all early stuff, yeah. From a game? From a role-playing That's game. Awesome. I mean, the, the West End Games source books there's yeah. there's dozens of them and they had to invent loads of information for these and you i honestly cannot understate how much of what we understand yeah. about the star wars universe came from west end games well i mean and it makes it makes total sense i mean for anyone who's done you know role-playing games uh before like D and and whatnot um you know you you do have to create these rules in order for a board game type of thing to work um but I didn't realize that, yeah, I'm so familiar with the idea of, of the different cores and the outer regions and the unknown regions and all that, that it just seemed like it was just, I mean, it's just accepted as a thing within the Star Wars universe. I didn't realize that it came from a board, from a role-playing game. Yeah, and a lot of these start off as, you know, just throw away uh, bits of information. But by the time... Disney bought Star Wars and Legends came to an end. Yeah. The galaxy has been mapped in extensive detail. Yeah. And it's I'm thrilled that canon is sticking to that because why wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, if if, if galactic cartography is your thing, <laughs> then I highly recommend The Essential Atlas by uh, veteran reference book author oh, Dan Wallace. There we it's, go. It's deep. Um, <laughs> and I know that uh, Jason Fry has worked alongside him as well and they they did a few sort of online appendices after the fact as they kept updating it and that it's been used for so many reference books and stories since it's kind of it's kind of the the definitive about where planets are where they're located and i've seen i've seen a bit of analysis about some of the use of maps on various view screens in this series as well when the penultimate one went out and they're trying to locate gideon's cruiser mm-hmm. I saw a video, it might have been on Star Wars Explained, where they're really they're overlaying what we see in the show on top of graphics from the oh, Essential Atlas. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'll have... That's really cool. I and it all ties up that. pretty well. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was thrilling for me. <laughs> kind of stopped listening to what the main characters were saying. Just, I think I watched that three or four times just with subtitles on. Well, yeah. Enjoying hearing it. No, it was it was definitely really cool to I mean to get um to get a protocol droid first of all um you know obviously three PO uh, connection there and so it was cool to yeah. see that within this uh, this story you don't really hear anyone talk so factually about how the geography works within Star Wars. No, and we also mentioned the the Maelstrom and um the. the planet kessel from mm-hmm. solo as well so there's more there's more recent information in there that's right but even even then i say recent the fact that kessel has always been since the jedi academy trilogy it's always been in the same system as 
the Moor, mm-hmm. which is a series of black holes where the Imperials had a secret research center hidden. Oh. Uh, but that obviously served as a lot of inspiration for what we saw in Solo I as see. well. Interesting. I didn't know about this either, of course. That is why I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we also get to see an Imperial code cylinder being used. Mm-hmm. And again, that's one of those things that's just, to me, incredibly satisfying. I've read about code cylinders for decades and never actually seen one being used how it's supposed to be used. <laughs> so it's such a throwaway thing that makes me happy. Yeah, well, because it's, I mean, they you see them under, under coats and under jackets. I, I, they do use them properly in the animated series as well, actually. Uh, you see them a couple times, in, I think, in, in Clone Wars, actually. So, um, so, but yeah, this is the first time that I, probably the first time that we see it in, in live action. Yeah, and it, even though it's a bit... It's a bit clunky to hear it when they say code cylinder every time because it, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I'm sure they've got a catchier name in real Star Wars universe life. Right. Um, they sh- yeah, it's, they're just going exactly by what it does. And it's like, yeah, you know, maybe some shortened name for it, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like, But when you see them in, in the movies and stuff and you see a lot of Imperials have got two of them, you'll right. have a code cylinder, you'll have a rank cylinder as well, uh, which has, you know, information about that person. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a whole load of different users uses for them that have been established over the years yeah i guess i mean the closest thing to that nowadays in in our world would just be like usb keys right just yeah yeah which is i mean when they came up with this i don't know if if back when they were filming the original trilogy and they put these little cylinders on on the imperial jackets that they were thinking that that's what it was or if it was just something that looked interesting and different or if they were just supposed yeah, to be yeah i'm definitely going with the pens. second one <laughs> Yeah, that's probably what they were yeah, just galactics. <laughs> space pens space pens and over time they're like yeah it's maybe a little too nerdy or ridiculous that they just have these like weirdly thick space pens so maybe and and after seeing how r2 you know gets information out of the of their computers right that yeah it's sort of, sort of with this cylindrical element they're like you know what maybe that's what those tubes are and that's just like that's this kind of information retrieval or you know uh holding system which you know i hadn't made that connection but you yeah you you're right that's probably exactly the same same input but r2's got yeah anyway should we move on from space pens and go to something a bit more interesting well sure <laughs> go for it so dark troopers mm. <laughs> you, well you just went from space pens to dark troopers so yes that yeah. is far more interesting <laughs> okay what are dark troopers there, there was so much, so much squealing on the internet when we saw mm-hmm. Dark Troopers. Now, we're not going to go into Dark Troopers too much. Our very own Nathan's got a video up on the Utini YouTube channel all about the history of Dark Troopers. That's so right. So definitely go and check that out. In fact, there was things in there that I didn't know. Oh. So that uh, was really interesting. There you go. Um, but they were first introduced in the Dark Forces video game featuring Kyle Katan, the Chuck Norris of Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I say video game. The story was also adapted into a gorgeous-looking graphic novella by William C. Deitz, oh, wow. an audio drama, and even the Prima Game Guide had the script from a whole game in its back pages. And obviously, you've got a whole series of games that came on after that. But in contradiction to the information we get from Dr. Pershing in uh, this chapter, uh-huh. the Legends Dark Troopers were always droids. Oh, interesting. Except... For a failed phase zero, because he talks about these being phase three. Yes. Now, phase one and two were used in Legends, but there was also a phase zero, which used clone troopers' bodies, 
but replacing much of our original bodies with machinery. But even that information about a phase zero came from a pretty niche source in an RP role-playing game source book based on the Force Awakens games. Oh, oh, so actually very recent. So that's... Sorry, I've done it again. Not Force Awakens, Force Unleashed. I see. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I mean, still, you know, within the last decade is Force Unleashed. That was within... Yeah, so... um. Outside of the video games, Dark Troopers don't really show up much else in Legends. But there is a story I want to talk about, which is Sandblasted from Star Wars Tales number four. Okay. So this is set a few years after Endor, where they stumble upon a Dark Trooper that has just been buried in the sand. It obviously got launched, uh, the rest of them, in the attack on a rebel base that's described in the Dark Forces video game, but for whatever reason, remained unoperational. (laughs) Anyway, these characters, Big Giz and Spiker, Uh they stumble upon it. But they were created for Shadows of the Empire. They played a minor role in that story as thugs who work for Jabba, Uh who attempt to kill Luke while he's on Tatooine. But you also had to read the comic in order to realize their part, because they go unnamed in the book and the video game. But Big Giz also went to star in a series of junior books set in the Clone Wars for feature a Chiss Jedi, which you don't see very often. No. Chiss Jedi, that is. A Chiss Jedi. That's... Now, I'll admit, I, I've got those books. I, I haven't read them, but I, I desperately want to find the time to get to them because I want to kind of understand how it is that you can have a Chiss Jedi as a fairly acceptable character and people not go, who the... Who, what, why? Who are you? <laughs> what, what species are you? Because Chiss shouldn't be very well known at that point in Legends. Yeah, I mean, from my understanding, right? I mean, the Chiz are, they're more like legendary, more of a legendary race or, or species within the Star Wars universe. And that's why when they, when Thrawn was first introduced, at least in canon, right? That everyone's like, what are you? Who are you? Where are you from? And, and that's why it was such a big mystery to get to know more about Thrawn. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in, in Thrawn's original introduction, which is a short story called Mist Encounter from Adventure Journal. Mm. Now, that short story was actually repurposed for the opening of the Thrawn canon novel, so we kind of get the same information, oh, okay. uh, but told differently. I th- you know, the early chapters of him sort of ambushing the stormtroopers yeah. and working his way onto the ship, that's all been done before, but he rewrote it for his canon introduction, which is really cool. Yeah, But even in that, they're... They don't know who he is. They don't know his species. They struggle to communicate with him until they find a sort of common dialect that they both understand. So they're not they're not a common species by any stretch. That's right. So, I mean, yeah. So the idea of a Jedi Chiss is, I mean, yeah, it makes very little bold. sense. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So that's something I want to just wanted to throw in there. Uh, I hadn't included any of that in my notes, so I love this show sometimes. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I guess just two two little things on my end for this one. Um, just uh, when we're walking through the town, we do see a statue of IG-11 in the background. But I just thought it was worth uh, noting because it was kind of cool to see. So Yeah, and I think it shows, uh, it shows a lot for the, the passage of time between this season and the last one because it it feels like it happens straight away. Right. It feels like season two just follows on from season one. That's true. But this, this episode is the first one where 
you think, well, actually, there must have been some time because Grief seems quite settled in mm-hmm. there and Cara Dune seems quite settled in and they've managed to build a statue. Yes. So there's obviously a passage of time, but we just don't know how much. That's true, yeah. I mean, just seeing that there's now, it seems like a... Like they're thriving, right? I mean, they have a, a school with with macaroons and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kids in there. Um, so the town it definitely feels very different from what we saw in the first season of The Mandalorian. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we still don't know whether it's a week after, six months, a year. Yeah. Um, th- these are the things that keep me awake at night, Lucasfilm. Come on. <laughs> Probably more than a few weeks if they manage to build a school and kids oh, are now playing around and stuff. So I think, yeah, we're talking a, a few months at the very least. But then that's an opening for more stories. We know there's an untitled novel still on the way. Oh, so yeah. we know there's comic series coming. So this could all take place in between the season. We've, that, we still don't know. I hadn't even thought about that, that they could, yeah, just some of these blanks that they were, I mean, it makes sense, but that they would be filling in the blanks uh, with the novels and possibly a future comic um, that they release. Yeah, I mean, the, the other point that I had for this episode uh, was that we do see these uh, cloning pods uh, towards the end of the episode, right? So, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's fairly obvious i think for anyone that has watched the, the main uh nine saga films but it's a re- it's a to me it is a direct um connection to what we see in episode nine uh the rise of uh, skywalker yeah and there's no way that we don't get a particularly close look at the one clone no. that they see in the tank no but it's obviously meant to make us think about snow exactly yeah it's, we do see know, the tank deliberate and uh, we do see the tanks in, in episode nine with all the possibly failed or spare Snokes. <laughs> to me, it was just worth noting just because I think it is this show. I mean, even though we know that it is happening between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy, this is to me the first time that they very much become a direct bridge between the two storylines. And all the Easter eggs that we've seen before this and all the connections, they very much direct, you know, directly out of the prequel trilogy or the original trilogy. And now we are getting these um, connections to what happens after, which we then continue to get all the way to the end. We don't know where this storyline is going to go. Will this cloning storyline be covered? Will that be carried on in The Mandalorian? Will that be carried on in one of these other shows? Remember, we still don't even know what they want Baby Yoda's blood for. That's right. I mean, well... Everyone assumed it was the Dark Troopers, Mm -hmm. but then we find out that they're actually just droids. Right. I still think that, I mean, if I were to speculate, they're probably just trying to figure out how to bring uh, Palpatine back or something along those lines or how to make him be more stable because maybe they're just transferring his essence from like clone body to clone body and it's never stable enough to maintain him. Well, we know as readers that the Empire is alive and well in the unknown regions at this point. Right. Uh, under the command of Gallius, Gallius Rax. Right. Whether Palpatine has already been cloned at this point, whether he's alive and active, that still remains to be seen. That's right. But, I mean, I, I would assume that his psyche has to be stored somewhere. So. In Legends, it was a 
because obviously he's he's cloned and returns in Legends as well, mm-hmm. as Jared reminds us every week on Legends Look Back <laughs> with a reference to Naked Palps. Yes. Um, in Legends, he literally, he transferred his his essence, so his consciousness, mm-hmm. straight into a waiting clone and then went through a few bodies before yeah. he finally returned. So I imagine that if we ever find out, it would be something very similar. Yeah. Because um, I much prefer the idea of transferring your consciousness through Sith magic than being stored on a memory disc. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's that makes sense to me. Or, or, or him just waiting around as a Sith ghost to be able to then yeah. inhabit some sort of future body. I Yeah, I like the idea of just a whole bunch of just husks of body husks that are just like being thrown out, every, you know, because they just decompose and then he just needs a new one. And that's why maybe they just need more midichlorians or whatever from, from Grogu's uh, blood. But we definitely see that they're practicing. That's, right. that's the one thing we can take away from his show is that they're practicing at it. That's right. All right. Next episode. Next episode. Uh, this will be the second episode of this second season of The Mandalorian to break the internet <laughs> as Ahsoka transitions into live action. That's right. And again, loads of discussion on what this means for the expanded universe, how people feel about Ahsoka's portrayal. I loved it. Simple as that. Loved it. Thought it was amazing. I thought Rosaria Dawson did a fantastic job. Yeah, 100% agree on that. But they also included HK-87 droids, and that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> of course. All right. So tell me about these droids. So for an obvious callback to the amazing HK-47 from a Knights of the Old Republic game, mm. listen to this soundbite to just get a feel for the droid's personality and his general hatred towards organics. Yep. Evisceration works well, electrocution and blunt trauma also work well. There are a lot of politicians on Coruscant, Master. I could spend decades slaughtering them and still not make a dent. And it is not as if I walked into the Senate chambers with a carbonite explosive. I was very discreet. My best work to date that I can remember. But HK-47 also had an unlikely resurrection. In an expansion pack for Star Wars Galaxies, which is Freddy C's favourite Star Wars game. (laughs) So this expansion pack was called The Trials of Mm Obi-Wan. It was released in 2005. Some of the story of the droid's return was told in a series of very short stories released on the Galaxy's website. Now, these aren't available anymore, like so many things I talk about. (laughs) That you still have copies of somehow. Yeah, but they're so obscure, they don't even have a page on Wikipedia. Wow. Because I I had a quick look while I was doing my research. But this story basically tells of um, a crashed starfighter from the Old Republic on Mustafar. And when they find it, they essentially unlock the consciousness or the AI mm-hmm. of HK-47, who wasn't the most stable droid to begin with, but at this point has gone absolutely barking, who wants to basically make an army of droids with his own nasty personality. Star Wars is weird sometimes. I, I like it when they go weird, so that's good. But the other interesting fact about the droids that we do see, the HK-87 droids, mm-hmm. is that they bear the insignia of the Seventh Fleet, which is the Imperial Fleet commanded by Thrawn during the time covered by his appearance on Rebels. Ah, so, I mean, we already sort of knew that Thrawn was somehow involved in what's going on here. Yep, absolutely. And, okay, we've had, we've had Bo-Katan, 
We've had Ahsoka, you know, amazing efforts, but we kind of all knew they were coming. The mention of Thrawn at the end of this episode was my first holy shit out loud moment of the show so far this season. <laughs> I Not the last. I was not expecting that at all. I mean, I could no. sort of, you know, Bo-Katan and her crew, I mean, they're Mandalorian, so that makes total sense. I assumed they were talking about Gideon. All the mentions to your master. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, the fact that they went with Thrawn, it just, I mean, that's incredible. I, we've been fan casting Thrawn in the Discord server for months now. Every now and then the conversation comes back up and like, who should play him? Who should play him? And I guess we, I mean, it sounds like we're going to be able to get to see a live action Thrawn in at least, you know, a season or two. It, it's got to be, uh, I forget the actor's name who voices him. Uh, but it's got to be that guy. He was in. He was in an episode of Sherlock, and he's been in loads of stuff. And he's just incredible. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, Mads Mikkelsen's uh, brother, right? Who yes. is uh, you know uh, Galen Erso. Yes, yes. So uh, yeah, no, that's it's super exciting to see that you know, that we will be able to get uh, a live action Thrawn, which also then brings into question, you know, when is this happening, and is does that mean that we're going to get Ezra as well? You know, very possible, I think. They wouldn't have done this if it wasn't in the pipeline. And they've been talking about a Rebel sequel show for for a long time now. And to be honest, it still makes me wonder whether there's more that they haven't announced. Because yeah. it doesn't quite tie in with the Ahsoka series. It, you know, is Ahsoka going to be the series where she, she's looking for Ezra and Thrawn? But that's set in the same timeline as The Mandalorian. But yeah. going off this episode, Thrawn's already back. So there's a... There's a lot, so I, I think there's still some more surprises to come in terms of Star Wars show announcements. That's amazing. I mean, we've got a huge surprise at the end of this yeah. season that we that they didn't announce a few days before. So they definitely have a few more things up their sleeve. Absolutely, 100%. One thing that I thought was uh, interesting, kind of just like a uh, contrasting thing happening at the same time, was when we have the... Mando's duel and Ahsoka's duel at the same time, just because they're very much as like the two direct references to uh, you know what inspired George Lucas in the first place, which are your you know classic westerns and classic samurai films. So we have Ahsoka's obviously being the one that's very inspired by uh, samurai films, and then we have uh, the Mandalorian's uh, duel that is very much a western type of um, fight. So, I saw a couple of um, a couple of takes regarding this episode that I've, I really sort of disagreed with. Where because the obvious sort of Kurosawa influences on this episode, um, people was almost dissing Dave Filoni for his direction and how he was just stealing from these from these other sort of genres. And that's what Star Wars does. That's what yeah. George Lucas does. It, yeah, the whole plot for the original Star Wars film is basically the hidden fortress from a Akira Kurosawa film there so none of this stuff is stolen it's all homages and that's right the people who are making Star Wars now are the people who were influenced by the guy who made Star Wars right so no, I, essentially yeah. what you get is more concentrated Star Wars <laughs> that's right no I mean I, I don't I mean I actually didn't see any of that um, sort of like hate uh, comment, comments and anything but I mean, I can understand why people would say that, but yeah, it's like it's not it's not stealing. I mean, it's it's definitely just 
if you know anything about Star Wars, like you do know that this is uh, these are their sort of like sources of inspiration for Absolutely. the whole universe. So it just to continue to use that just means that you know that you're trying to continue to pay homage and 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 tribute to these sources because um, and Dave Filoni knows this. I mean, Dave Filoni worked with George Lucas and the Clone Wars animated series, and the, and it's so he's not gonna be doing something that is disrespectful. Absolutely. And then the other thing I just wanted to touch on and maybe just get your opinion on this, but I mean, the episode is called The Jedi, right? And we know that Ahsoka is not a Jedi. Like, she left the Jedi Order. So on one hand, I mean, is she just being called a Jedi just because it's just easier for people to understand that she is good and, you know, for us viewers to to know that she is just a slight, you know, sort of a Jedi? Or could the episode itself be called the Jedi because of Grogu, who was indeed trained under a Jedi Academy, right, in Coruscant? So he is a Jedi, or at least a Padawan, or right? Or go a little bit bigger, and the Jedi of the title could just be talking about the Jedi, the Jedi as a whole, and not not specifically. Ahsoka or Grogu. And okay, I have I have a theory. Go for it. You stated that Ahsoka's not a Jedi, correct? That's right. So I'm guessing you're referring to the end of the Clone Wars arc where she specifically says, I'm not a Jedi. Mm-hmm. And I was really expecting that line to be in this show. I think everyone was expecting this line to be in this episode when Din confronts her and yes. he's saying he's been sought to seek out a Jedi. Yeah, we were all expecting her to go. I'm no Jedi. She didn't say yeah, that. She, no, she did not. That's true. She, she didn't say that. And the Jedi Order's gone. The Jedi Order is no more. Do you need an order to be a Jedi? You don't, because I mean, in the Luke Skywalker is a Jedi. He's the return of the Jedi. Yoda is still around, or was still around during the you know for some of the original trilogy, and he was a Jedi. But we've seen from her appearance in Rebels as well, she still, she practices the Jedi philosophy. She hasn't turned her back. She never turned her back on being a Jedi. The Jedi Order turned its back on her. Mm-hmm. So she's absolutely the Jedi. I think that title was deliberate. Okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, she, she does still practice what I think is what a Jedi does, but she did turn away from the Jedi Order and maybe maybe when she was making a point that she was not a Jedi back in the animated series, it was just because the Jedi Order was still a thing and she did not want to associate herself with what the Order was doing. Once there's no more Order, then she can... She maybe begins to accept that, yeah, she is still... This is what she knows and this is what she believes in. And so she can she maybe feels more comfortable calling herself a Jedi again. Yeah, because ultimately a lot of what the prequel trilogy is about is the faults of the Jedi right. Order. And right. her storyline's a massive part of that. Right. And she's she talks about the not wanting to train Grogu because of attachment, which to me actually that I didn't like that portrayal of Ahsoka. I understand it served the larger story. Yeah. But of all the people that he could have gone to. Yeah. I kind of feel she would have been the one 
not to have that viewpoint and to yeah. to want to train Grogu. Yeah, but she also was very much affected by Anakin turning into the dark side, right? So, I mean, out of anyone, I mean, besides perhaps Obi-Wan and, and Padme, I mean, Padme died because of it, um, but, you know, Ahsoka knows what it's like for when a Force-sensitive person or a Jedi, um, when they are attached to someone else, what what that can lead to because she saw it firsthand with Anakin turning into Darth Vader. But it was also interesting that she recommended just letting his powers fade. That yeah. I, I don't think that's something that's really sort of been discussed in the Star Wars universe before. That that's right. If you don't practice these powers, they'll just they'll just go away. Which yeah. It's kind of the opposite of how we've been led that the force works, where people people realize they're force sensitive because they have these feelings, these yeah. intuitions. So to think the force would just fade when he doesn't use it, again, that's that struck me as as a bit wrong. But in Dave Filoni and John Favreau, we trust that you know they don't say these things accidentally everything is there for a reason it's true no i mean i, I have total confidence in, in, in them at this point so whatever they're planning to do i'm sure that i mean i think everyone in the community in the big star wars community is gonna love because everyone has been so much into whatever they've been everything that they've been doing so far with this show and then talking about the force so mm-hmm. the next chapter mm-hmm. takes us to tython and mm-hmm. if hearing Thrawn was nuts for me, hearing Tython mentioned blew my mind. <laughs> I'd like to get like a graph of like, <laughs> like you. My pulse like, rate. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah, your pulse rate would just across every one of these episodes. Because I could just sort of see your level of excitement like, oh my God, oh my God, Thrawn, Tython. Could you, imagine it, could you imagine it mapped over everyone else's? Everyone spikes when it sees Bo-Katan. Everyone spikes when it says Ahsoka. And then man goes off the rails when they say Code Cylinder. <laughs> you um, are a unique person, Trevor. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to assume that's a compliment. Anyway. It is a compliment. So, <laughs> I like unique people. So, Tython. Um, I, when we talked about our frustration earlier, that they just constantly invent new planets when we've got mm-hmm. a whole map. There's a whole map galaxy full of planets to suit their needs. So they chose the most perfect planet. It had already been mentioned in canon. It's in a uh, couple of episodes of a Dr. Aphra 2015 run. And I was pretty okay. shocked that it was in there for that. But this mm-hmm. blew my mind. So first appearance of Tython in Legends is in Darth Bane, Rule of Two. But the planet's a huge part of the Dawn of the Jedi series, which is one novel and three graphic novels set over 25,000 years before A New Hope and goes deeper than any story had ever gone before into the history, not just of the Jedi, but of the Force itself. So these are completely different to any other Star Wars you ever would have read. And the the graphic novels have have just been collected in Marvel's most recent epic collection, which literally got released the day after this episode aired. (laughs) That's not an accident. 
surely no, that's not an accident. No, it's not. And for people like you that know about this, then I'm sure everyone's just losing their minds. So everyone who didn't know about Typhon went onto Wikipedia after this. Mm-hmm. Straight away would have been going to Amazon. Brilliant. Just absolute class all around. Yeah, I mean, I think Disney knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> of, like making money out of this. But then, so we're on Tython. We've got Jedi Temple. We've got Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. That's enough, right? I'm already in love with this episode. And then we get Boba Fett. It's yes. Like, Jesus Christ. Yes. Uh, but the first thing we see is Slave One. Obviously, that ship's design is absolutely iconic. And there was yes. no way, if we're introducing Boba Fett, they're not going to use Slave One. Right. So I was very, very glad to see it. However, in Legends, after Fett's escape from the Sarlacc and gets rescued by Dengar, Slave One's actually impounded by the New Republic. So I'm going to cover on that a bit briefly. Uh, L. Rob over on our Discord server asked about the the capabilities and the weaponries of Slave One. Now, we don't actually see anything new. Obviously, we see the seismic charge, which is incredible because I love that. But there's never any, there's never a lot of difference between Slave One and Canon and Legends. However, Boba does fly a series of other ships. So by the time of Dark Empire and Legends, the source book states that the Boba is flying around in Slave Two. By that point, he's mm-hmm. obviously not particularly imaginative. Um, in Dark Empire Two, he's managed to f- get Slave One back from the New Republic, so he's flying around in that again. Yeah. Um, the Dark Empire sourcebook establishes that he has a couple of ships around available to him, including the Slave 3, which is only ever mentioned in reference books. It never shows up in a comic or okay. any books. It's only in reference books, but it does have a cool shuttle called the Slaveling. And then that's, Slave okay. 4, which is... <laughs> that's the ship he's flying in the short story, The Last One Standing, by Daniel Keyes Moran from the Tales of a Bounty Hunter's book. We're going to come to that one in a second. But do you remember in our first Mandalorian episode where we talked about Boba Fett Pretenders? Yes, We I talked do. about his appearance in The Young Jedi Knights that was actually retconned as being his daughter. Mm-hmm. Well, she's flying Slave 4 in those books. Oh, okay, okay. But I need to talk about The Last One Standing. So this was from The Tales of a Bounty Hunter books by uh, Daniel Keith Moran. Mm-hmm. It was the first story to give us a substantial backstory for Boba Fett. So this story establishes that he was a journeyman protector called Jasta Muriel from the planet Concord Dawn. Now, some of those names may be familiar to people. Um, I'll kind of go over the reasons why. Obviously, Attack of the Clones came out and completely rode roughshod over, over all of that by making him a clone of Jango Fett, etc., etc. Yes. But the graphic novel I mentioned earlier, Jango Fett Open Seasons incorporates lots of elements of this short story back into Legends. So oh, okay. that establishes Jasta Muriel as the leader of the Mandalorians at the time that Jango's a young boy, who takes him in after his family are killed by Death Watch. And all of this still works with the information we get from Boba's code chain in this episode. Yes. So that code chain, a little holographic display that pops up, it mentions Jasta Muriel. It mentions Foundling, hinting at Django's status as a foundling after being taken in by Jasta. But how do we know what that says? How is this translated? Because it's in Mandoa, Man- the language used by the Mandalorians. Oh. Make, make sense, correct? Yes. So Karen Travis, who wrote all the Republic Commando series and 
develop this whole Mando culture before the Clone Wars uh, animated series went there. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's the reason she stopped writing Star Wars was because we already had this entire established culture for Mandalorian and Mandalore that just kind of got wiped and corrected. And it tried to get retconned, didn't really work. So that's why she finished writing Star Wars. Anyway, I digress. So she invented quite a few Mando words and phrases. In fact, in one of the Mando uh, Republic Commander books, there's a Mando glossary okay. detailing all these words. And there was an actual typeface for this language that was developed for Attack of the Clones. I see. So that's what we see on screen. I see. And the one thing that's been incredible about the season is how many of the languages we see on screen are completely translatable. And the one thing that surprised me is is how many fans are fluent in Orobesh and can yes. actually read it. It makes me feel like a slacker. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can't just read it from uh, just looking at it? No, I'm going to go with the fact I've always been terrible at languages and leave it at that. <laughs> I see. So Mandoa is more or less the same thing as the Arabesh, where like it's it's um it's directly translatable yeah i see so the letter is just like yeah a is just this little symbol and b is this symbol and yeah but in legends it was its actual own language there's, i see there's loads of you know made up words um interesting but i was doing some research on republic commander recently because sometimes i just get an idea in my head and i need to find stuff out uh-huh but i and we're talking in the last couple of months and i found out that some of the original developer blogs that came out online in regards to the Republic Commander video game are actually written as in-universe articles, almost like oh. the, the diary of a Camino cloner, meaning that even now there's still new Legends content out there for me to discover. <laughs> that was a good day. That was... <laughs> I mean, even though you have 900 and whatever many like books behind you, there is still content out there that you're discovering. The that's, fact that it's still online is the most incredible thing. Yeah. No, that's amazing. That's so cool. Um, well, and I just want to add, since we're talking about language and, and, and symbols and, and such, um, I wanted to bring up that we have the this Jedi runes on the yes. stone that Grogu sits on, right? And I mean, so I mean, I did a little bit of research to to know what they are, but I mean, do you? What can you do? You know anything about them, or what can you tell us about these Jedi runes? I I've seen them around. It's not mm-hmm. something I've spent a lot of thought on. Um, yeah. Trust me when I see some of the people where languages are their thing. I've been quite surprised yes. this week how <laughs> language <laughs> intensive some of these Twitter accounts are. Um, but yeah, yeah. The, the runes haven't well, been one of my things. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I obviously I don't I I don't know much about them, but I, I thought it was um, from what I did look up. It's interesting that these uh, these runes apparently are you you first actually see them in a in an, the Old Republic video games, you see the, these uh, Jedi runes. Uh, okay. And they're actually based off of uh, Ralph McQuarrie Javan temple design. So, I mean, I guess it first showed up in that temple design, but it was just never really officially released. So then in this, again, video games and gaming, adding more context and content to this universe, they, bring, they brought in these runes as part of the game. Um, and then after that, you know, it was just never really used up until 
Dave Filoni in Rebels, he brings his runes again, and you do see them in. Um, around, I think it was in the World Between Worlds, or when you you know when you see the owl, and just you just start seeing them in some instances. Oh, so, so very brings, Jedi Temple based. Mm-hmm. So he brings them back in there, and then most recently you do see the runes in Jedi uh, Fallen Order, the video game that came out uh, last year. Then I do have some bad news for you as well. What's that? Somebody did try to translate the runes on the sea and stone, and it's just complete garbage. It doesn't mean oh, anything. Yeah. It's just random letters. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's. I would say that, I mean, they didn't focus too much on that, so, you know, it was kind of far away, so maybe some of those runes were just, uh, you know, blurry and not exact enough, but... Or maybe it's just not had an accurate translation yet. Right, right. You know, maybe it is in another language as well. So it's not just, uh, it doesn't translate to, you know, this rune means A necessarily within this stone. Something that um, is interesting about the stone itself is that it's it's kind of reminiscent to uh, the stone that we see in The Last Jedi where... Luke Skywalker sits on to also, you know, to do his meditation and everything. So it just makes me wonder. I mean, so is this a a feature of perhaps these old, old uh, Jedi temples that you would have this seeing stone where you're either able to, I don't know if it amplifies your connection to to other temples or to other Jedi. It's just something interesting to perhaps like think about because obviously this is a very ancient temple the same as the one in act two where luke is in the last jedi that's that's really interesting again i hadn't made that connection between Mm -hmm. the two um but that makes a hell of a lot of sense that grogu's on that and he's able to to call out so he's it's he's essentially projecting himself correct right um so the fact that luke does something similar from a similar stone yeah. How, how did that not occur to me? Oh, you've got my mind going now. That's, that's <laughs> well, awesome. And, I mean, and, and I guess at this point, Luke probably hadn't found Act Two yet. No. Um, but it would be it would have been kind of interesting too that hey, like he you know Grogu is sitting on this stone, and of course, then the other person sitting on another stone somewhere else would be Luke, and that is why he got the message. Well, we don't but, even know that Luke's been to Tython. That's right. We don't, yeah, we don't know what he's been doing this whole time, but yeah. So I just thought that was kind of a, a cool, also like connection there, and I mean, and just the temple in general. I, I know that Alexander in the Discord brought up uh, just asking about Jedi temples in general and their designs. I think we can do. Well, you've already stated that we can do a whole episode on this at some point in the future, and I think we'll we'll do that. But yeah, I think we're definitely going to have a. A deeper dive into yeah. the various temples that we've seen in canon and legends. That's right. But so, but at least just in in this one instance, just something to to note would just be that you know this temple definitely seems um, ancient, and it's you know it resembles some of like our real world ancient ritualistic spaces. Uh, you know, we assume like Stonehenge and some of these other places around the world where you just have a, a ring of large stones and then they somehow are able to they you know there's meaning behind them or or something right so yeah we're, no... we're calling it a jedi temple but right you know is it is it the ruins of a temple or like you said is it because it's just so ancient that right. that is literally you know the stonehenge comparison exactly so so yeah that was just something else that i you know another 
interesting connection there. And then um, Boba Fett's weapons in this episode. I mean, we he is using a gaffy stick and a Tuscan rifle. So oh, so good, so yeah. good. I mean, and he's a total fucking badass with that gaffy stick. He just smashes his like. I mean, you can see how crappy the stormtrooper's like armor is because he just smashes it with this stick, right? So one um, one thought I had was um, obviously yeah, it, it emphasizes just how cheap their armor yes. is. Now we've never seen stormtrooper armor smash like that before. No. Now, is that an indication of sort of the waning power of the Empire, or is it just because mm. we've never seen it smash before? I mean, probably a little bit of the two. I mean, I mean, in real life. So yeah, I'm you know I'm a I'm an architect when I'm not doing this, and I have to wear a hard hat to go to job sites that are under construction, and hard hats do have an expiration date. Yeah. So, you know, plastic over time is not as you know as hard as it is when it is when when you when it first comes out so it's it could be you know now that you say that it does make me think that yeah perhaps whatever material is being used for these uh for stormtrooper armor yeah they probably don't have as many factories producing new ones anymore even though these guys looked a little that they're in better shape than the stormtroopers we saw in the first season with the client um, and this armor did look a little bit shinier and in better condition. However, it's also possible that, hey, maybe it is expired armor, and that is why it is able to break that much more easily. But also that leads us to the really weird comment that Boba Fett makes at the em- end of the episode about the Empire being back. Well, mm-hmm. you've, just, you've just spent 20 minutes beating up Stormtroopers. Of course they're <laughs> back. <laughs> you know, and Stormtroopers have been in the show since the first episode. They're chasing a moth. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it, that that one comment really sort of pulled me out of the episode. I'm thinking, well, yes, like, yeah. we, we all know this. Everyone no knows shit, this. Man. Like, what the hell? Have you been? Were you in that desert, like living under a rock for this whole? Like, were you still? <laughs> but that's like, an, in the Sarlacc pit the whole time. Yes, the Empire is back. <laughs> but that's another thing. We're you know we're going to get stories of how Boba Fett acquired these weapons. What happened between him and the Tuscans? Did they rescue yes. him? We're definitely going to get that story at some point. Of course. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my last point here before we go into your last one for this episode is just, I mean, a fun one, which is just a rolling boulder. Uh, I mean, clear reference to Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, another George Lucas uh, movie and series franchise. So just, I mean, whenever you see a giant boulder rolling, it's Indiana Jones. So. Absolutely. And it's just it's back to the homages that we were talking about earlier. That's right. So, right, so anyway, back to the show. So Din enlists Cara Dune's help at the end of this episode to find Mayfeld, and we see a series of mugshots. So we're going to go pretty deep into some of these. Again, they've all been translated, and there's some good stuff there. A lot of the prisoner names are brand new, but a lot of the prisons mentioned aren't. So we see the Sunspot prison get mentioned. So that's from the main Marvel Star Wars 2015 run. It's also part of the, the Afra audiobook which covers one of those arcs wabani is mentioned which is the prison genera so is rescued from a rogue one mm-hmm. mega blocks beta prison which is from the poe dameron comics and again that arc is incredible people should definitely go and seek that out one of the prisoners shown is jailed on uvu 4 now that planet appears in a bounty hunter video game 
and it's here that Jango Fett steals the Fire Spray class ship that he then renames as Slave One. Mm. And that's set shortly after The Phantom Menace. Ironically, okay. whichever prisoner, the prisoner shown on screen, well, it might not be ironic. It's more likely completely deliberately mm-hmm. that prisoner shown is in jail for starship theft. Oh. So kudos to whoever wrote that. Yes. No, that's great. That's a great connection there. But also another one of the planets named is Jubilar, mm-hmm. which is the planet where the bulk of the short story I was talking about earlier, The Last Man Standing, that gave Boba Fett some backstory, that's where the bulk of that short story happens. Okay. So there's a lot to take away just from those mug shots. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there, it's all in Arabesh, right? So it's just really interesting. I mean, it, kudos to, to the people that were actually translating all these things because when I saw it, I'm like, oh, there's probably a lot of really good information there, but I'm too lazy to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I actually downloaded an Arabesh translator app the other day. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to use it yet, but nice. I figured it should come in handy. Yeah, I'll have to get that. <laughs> so we're nearly there. Episode 15, penultimate episode. Go for it. So straight away, we see the Juggernauts from Revenge of the Sith, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Uh, The Starship Fuel Rhydonium is being uh, as a key part of that sort of chase sequence. Uh, So Rhydonium has turned up in story arcs from both Clone Wars and Rebels. It's also mentioned in uh, Ray's Survival Guide, which is one of those sort of in-universe junior books written by Jason Fry in 2015 as... It mentions in that book that Rhydonium is still present in starships that have crashed on Jakku, left over from the Battle of Jakku many years before. But the big expanded universe mentioned in this episode is Operation Cinder. Mm-hmm. This, this was another holy shit moment for me. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so Operation Cinder, we first kind of saw that in the graphic novel Shattered Empire by Greg Rucker. So that gives us... We see... Messenger droids deliver the orders of Palpatine's contingency plan all across the Imperial fleet. And the fleet targets keywords for retaliatory assaults. Battlefront 2 shows us the Imperial assault attacks on Vardos and Naboo. And you see the Naboo one also in Shattered Empire, so that's some great connectivity there. We see the operation discussed in the Alphabet Squadron books. Yeah. And in both these examples, so Iden Versio and Erica Quill both reconsider their loyalty to the Empire and defect to New New Republic directly because of Operation Cinder. And then the world that we see in this one that Mayfeld uh, talks about, Burning Con. So that operation led by Valen Hess was first mentioned as one of the targeted worlds in Shattered Empire, but it's also the main planet from the video game Star Wars Uprising. Now, this was a mobile-only video game from 2015, mm-hmm. and it was only available for just over a year before being pulled from stores and the service oh, closed no. down. Oh, no. Okay. And I never got to play it. <laughs> However, because the Star Wars community is a wonderful, wonderful thing, yes. and being what it is, somebody has managed to transcribe the entire game script as well as loads of pictures oh, and my stuff God. all about the game. So I'm going to link to that in our socials when I That's link all the books for this episode That's as well. That's so cool. Yeah, I we all thank you for doing that. <laughs> um, but that game takes place between Endor and Shattered Empire. So Shattered Empire takes place over a couple of weeks. Yeah. So the Uprising game takes place before the Operation 
that Mayfeld talks about. That's cool. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to read that. But before we get to the Luke Skywalker stuff, do you yes. want to go through your notes? Yeah, just two minor notes on this one. Um, one, just uh, again, just I, I, you know how I like to make my connections to to other movies and other pop culture things. But um, number one is just uh, you know when we have the the sort of like chase scene, very reminiscent, obviously, of your classic western train heist um we also get a little bit of that in solo if we want to stay within universe uh in the solo movie but uh there's actually when some of the shots are very much the same as mad max fury road so there's a few moments where the camera pans out and you see both vehicles sort of like you know sideways and you see the people um or the aliens jumping from one ship onto the the um, uh, the vehicle in which Dan, uh, Mando is on, it's sort of, it's, it looks exactly the same as what we see in Mad Max Fury Road. So that was just sort of like a, a cool little connection in there. Um, I can totally see that. Now, now that you say it, I can totally see that. And the other thing that I want to bring up that I'm sure uh, you picked up on, since I know you've, you just recently, this last week, I think you just watched the whole series, like the, seasons one and two, yeah, um, I did watch it all in preparation for the finale. Yes, you know. So, and this episode. <laughs> exactly. So the other thing that if people didn't pick up on this is the fact that the speech that Mando gives to Muff Gideon at the end of this episode is word... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's pretty much word for word what yeah, Muff yeah. Gideon said in the last season. Yeah, uh, but... For me, obviously, this carries a lot more weight. When Mando's saying the child means more to mm-hmm. me than you will ever know, you're just thinking, yeah, he's coming for you. He's not happy. No. And, I mean, it's something that, you know, we've been this attachment that, you know, in the previous episodes, they're talking a lot about how Grogu is attached to Mando, right? Yeah. But I think... We, you know, we can feel that he's also somewhat attached to him, by and he cares about him. But he, I think he tries to play it off as like, this is my quest, this is my mission. I just need to complete it, and just you know, he tries to be cool about it. But I think at this point, when you know, when the Razor Crest gets destroyed, and he finds the little silver ball <laughs> that that Grogu is constantly trying to get. Like, it is at this point where he just really, you know, he realizes or seems to acknowledge the fact that this kid does mean that much to him. And it's a lot more than just about the mission. Yeah. Um, that's what, when I say about Mando's coming for you, he's coming with, he's coming with all the vengeance of a pissed off parent. That's right. That's right. So, but yeah, those are the two things that I, that I wanted to bring up. And I think, uh, if you're done with that episode, yeah, let's get to this fantastic, holy fucking Christ, amazing finale <laughs> of an episode. You know what really? You know what I don't like about this episode? But it's it's only ten minutes long. That's all I can remember. I'm sure I blacked <laughs> out for the rest of it. Uh huh. We need to talk about stuff that happens before the big reveal at the end but yes so i'm gonna try desperately not to jump ahead to what i'd love to talk about but let's let's talk about 
let's talk about the because there's not a lot of references to earlier stuff. We've we've discussed the Dark Troopers, yes. the fact that they're droids. Um, it was great seeing the Lambda Shuttle again when he lands on. We don't get a name for the planet, but when they land on the planet to recruit Bo-Katan, we see the. I'm sure it's a Mandalorian starfighter that was used in the Clone Wars and actually turns up in the Rise of Skywalker big battle at the end as well at Exegol. Mm-hmm. I know that it's something that you want to discuss is the the launch tubes as well. Well, yeah, it just uh, just when it comes to the ship designs and all that stuff, it's uh, it's interesting to me and especially if it's a, shown in a way that we hadn't seen before. But um, yeah, the way that the TIE fighters are launched just through the middle and like you know in this long tunnel and they're just like shot out of of the imperial cruiser that's something that we you know we always see them kind of like coming from below or the sides of the cruiser so it was just really cool to see them coming right from the front and you know mentioned earlier that katie sackoff uh, aka bo katan that she was you know one of the main characters in battlestar galactica so when i saw this happening in this episode it just really reminded me of how the Vipers in Battlestar Galactica are also launched. It's sort of like the same similar, you know, very similar tunnel kind of propulsion that then shoots them out into space. I'll be showing my age as well, but I'm pretty sure that's how spaceships lost in the old Buck Rogers from a 24th century oh, TV really? show as well. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, again, it's just one of those classic references and, and uh, inspirations for, for these movies too, right? So. But also the TIE Fighters being on that sort of overhead conveyor belt reminded mm-hmm. me of the early levels from the Force Unleashed video game again okay. as well. Um, and then, yeah, so Din wins the Darksaber yeah. from Moff Gideon. Yes. Now, again, we've spoke about how this isn't my forte, so I'm not the expert on the Darksaber. Yeah. So why don't you talk to us about that for a second, Jose? Well... Yeah, for the dark saber to me, I mean, I I'm not an expert by any means either. But when I when I watched the episode, the one thing that kind of stuck out, you know, stood out to me, was that so, Din once just say, here, take it. I don't want to rule, which you know, it's not surprising to anyone. But Bo-Katan does not accept it, and. Muff Gideon says, well, no, she has to win it through combat because without that, then it's, you know, she cannot rule Mandalore. Like, you're right now, you are the proper ruler because you won the Darksaber through combat. And I was like, but hold up. Like, Sabine Wren in Rebels, she's the one that defeated, um, well, it, was it Maul that had it at the moment, right? So she was a proper ruler at the time, and then she gave the Darksaber to Bo-Katan, and Bo-Katan accepted it. So I'm like, so I've, I've seen people discuss him out online a lot. Yeah, and there was, a, so James from the Discord, he had a good theory, I thought. He, you know, he basically stated that, so Bo-Katan accepted it back then, and now she's not doing it, and it might just be because she, um, she did lose Mandalore after regaining control of it, right? So it's very possible that she now believes or thinks that she does need to 
win the Darksaber through battle in order for her to have the full support of whatever Mandalorians are left. If she is given the Saber again, then perhaps people are just not really going to buy that she is strong enough to lead the people to rule Mandalore. So she needs that story that she did beat Muff Gideon and that she won this Darksaber through combat in order for all the Mandalorians to rally behind and support her. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, one, one of my favorite lines from this episode is Moff Gideon saying, assume I know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's kind of, it's a, it's a wink to the viewer going, we know that you've seen these seasons of stuff. We haven't forgot that. Yes. So that's, I liked, I liked not understanding uh, the dynamic between Din and Bogotan at the end, but I was bearing that line in mind in my head. Yeah. Uh, plus also, you know, trust John Favreau and Dave <laughs> Filoni. Visit. They know where their story's going. Yes. They've got it mapped out. Yes. It's, it's, it's a really good angle that, yes, the status is important. Yes. The, the status of how you gain the Darksaber is important. Definitely. But also we're assuming that by having the Darksaber, Gideon was Mandalore. He was leader of Mandalore. But also the other things that we hear talked about is, you, so you mentioned about um, how Bo-Katan has presumably lost control of Mandalore. Yeah. But we hear about a purge. We hear about the planet's been laid to waste. So right. did she lose control of Mandalore or, you know, were they just bombarded by Star Destroyers from space? There's a whole lot that, that we don't know yet. Yeah. But it goes across to the point we mentioned earlier is, which show is this storyline going to be continued in? <laughs> Who's going to show us the flashbacks? I mean, yeah, I, there's there's so many shows coming out that who knows? Maybe that's a show that gets announced next year. <laughs> but then that brings me to, a, you know, one of the final things I want to talk about. Luke freaking Skywalker. There we go. And that is his official name now. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> he gained <laughs> As, a middle name. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And I said I said the translated version. <laughs> um, but we're, we're much closer to Return of a Jedi with this series of Mandalorian than we are to the sequel po- uh, trilogy at this point in the timeline. So Luke hasn't yet established his academy. It's pretty much just traveling the galaxy, letting the Force guide him as a fully-fledged Jedi Knight in his right. prime he he doesn't have many appearances in canon between the two trilogies so mm-hmm. he showed up in shattered empire he was in the battlefront 2 campaign mm-hmm. the only adult novel that has really focused on him is the legends of luke skywalker and that was a collection of short stories to be taken with a pinch of salt yeah because they were you know they're designed as legends of the character right Oh, he's in the Forces of Destiny animated short Traps and Tribulations, which is set mm-hmm. <laughs> directly after Return of a Jedi. Mm-hmm. But we haven't had much in the five years since Star Wars is back. We haven't had much. And then we get this. Yes. And holy shit. <laughs> I was I was giddy all day. I, I Tears when I watched it. I was shaken. This meant so much to me as a Star Wars fan. Yeah. Because that's, that's my character. That's my boy, right? Luke's yeah. my boy. So it was massive. Um, and because Star Wars is Star Wars, you know, there's been some criticism, there's been some negativity regarding it. But for me, there's a there's a very, very clear through line of Luke's characteri- characterization 
all the way through from A New Hope to The Last Jedi. I think this matches that perfectly. Like we were talking about um, Ahsoka's sort of views on attachment. Right. And here's, here's Luke making the same mistakes that the Jedi Council made, right? It, it could be read into this that he's taken a child away from his parents. Well, firstly, the child is, isn't taken. He, he wants to go. He, right. You know, he wants his dad to say. And also, Luke hasn't learned those lessons at this point in the timeline. Yeah, that's He's right. still to learn that. So he's, you know, he's still that very idealistic, I dress in black because I'm cool Jedi. <laughs> well, he's had to learn to be a Jedi a lot on his own, right? I mean, he, he spent a little bit of time with, with Obi-Wan, a little bit of time with Yoda. And I mean, I'm assuming that he's probably like, you know, checking in with their force, force ghosts every now and then to be like, hey, is this how you do this? But he had to become a Jedi a lot, you know, just, uh, it's, it's more of like a self-taught Jedi to me. Um, yeah, and essentially he was, you know, he was also, and this is forgotten a lot of the time, but he's essentially trained as a weapon. Yeah. He's he's trained to to kill Darth Vader and the Emperor. That's, That's right. why he's there. And now he doesn't do that because of his, you know, his innate goodness and faith in humanity and the, the good in other people. Yeah. Um, but not a lot of his training focused on being a Jedi, the philosophical side of it, which yeah. is something we saw in, especially in Legends, in the original Thrawn trilogy of him kind of struggling what it means to be a Jedi. So if we were ever going to get future Luke stories, there's been rumors about an animated Luke show, which, you know, I'd absolutely die for. <laughs> but that's that's where we're at with Luke in his you know in his life, he's he's still learning what it means to be a Jedi. But mm. in this episode, for example, he heard a call. Like there's a couple of shots where you're, you're meant to tell that Grogu is literally calling out to Luke at those yeah. moments. So Luke hears a call of someone in trouble. He goes and saves some guys that are about to be killed, and he kicks some ass on the way. Yeah, what's not to love about that as a character? I mean, and how he kicks ass too, right? Because oh, so good. I mean, this was a parallel to Vader in Rogue One when you see the full power of these individuals, like how good they are. Because we don't see that, you know, we don't see them fighting at this level during the original trilogy. Like, there's some good sword fighting and whatnot, but holy crap, the way he's just, like, slicing and cutting through all his, uh, the, all his droids. I mean, oh, my God. And it's, also, I think, I think you could very clearly take away from this episode that Luke is stronger than Darth Vader. Darth oh yeah. Vader butchers some humans in a corridor. Yes. Luke yes. fights through an entire ship of the Dark Troopers when it's already been established just how tough these things are Right earlier in the episode. That's right. We, I mean, we saw how, how difficult it was for, for Din to, to defeat just one of them, right? Um, and an entire ship with them. <laughs> Not an easy task. I mean, it was just really impressive. It was, I mean, the, whole, the way that they filmed the whole thing was just amazing too because you, you might get an idea that it's, that it's Luke. You don't really know up until the end, but I was just like, I'm like, wait, no, I see a hand, a gloved hand. That's probably the robot hand. <laughs> so well, I think that when that's the X-wing Luke. turns up, when yeah. when you first see the X-wing turn up, 
my first thought was no they're, <laughs> they're, they're not they, they can't surely they're not gonna do that yeah. there's gonna be another ton of x-wings come around the corner now that's right it's a fake off the new republic's on its way yeah and but... then you see him I, I, I still can't put into words I've, I've tried i think i was the only person active in the discord channel all day because i just couldn't stop talking about <laughs> it yeah it was like quite the thing to to see for for i yeah i think the star wars community at large i think uh if anyone has not watched this episode yet, I think it'd be pretty hard not to get spoiled about the fact that Luke is now in The Mandalorian. <laughs> and it just remains to be seen where we go from here. And I, I have no idea. That's right. I want to make sure that I leave you enough space to, to fan, fanboy about uh, Luke. So is there I'm, I'm done. Else? No, I'm, I'm fanboyed out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> I think we just need to touch them. One last thing, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, which is, uh, you know, the post-credits. We get a post-credits scene, and we see Boba Fett coming in. What I actually, I mean, I didn't write anything about Boba Fett coming in, because it's pretty obvious. I mean, we, we saw it. But my note <laughs> was, Bib Fortuna gained weight. <laughs> I, I think it must be something to do with that throne. I think if you sit there, you just get fat. I, I, but that was fantastic. And the fact that they showed Bib Fortuna stepping into the hole left by yeah. um, Jabba's death, whether, you know, the Jabba's crime syndicate is as prominent or not, we mm-hmm. don't know. That's still backstory that's left to be filled in. And I just thought that was a cool little scene. And when it yeah. dropped, the book of Boba Fett, December 21. Oh, my God. That was another holy shit out loud. Oh, yeah. Like, nobody knew that was coming. No. I mean, it's so... I'm super excited to see that and see what... I mean, so it's only a year away. So hopefully we also get season three of The Mandalorian right before this. And we can go from Mandalorian to The Book of Boba Fett and whatever else crazy shit uh, the people at Star Wars have in store for us. Um, But... Trev, if you don't have anything else here... I think, yeah, that's... Uh, so we've covered all the episodes of Mandalorian now and their EU influences, so... Yeah, I think that it is time for our segment of uh, the batshit crazy book of the week. So why don't we cue the music and let's take it from there. It's the batshit crazy book of the week. Okay, so this is one of our new segments that we're going to try over the next few episodes. Each episode, I'm going to focus on a particularly insane book. It may be it's really rare. It may be the content within. It may be just completely batshit crazy. This week, I'm going to talk about Battle of the Bounty Hunters. We've just finished talking about Boba Fett, so it felt right that I'd choose a Boba Fett story. So this is a hardback pop-up book published by Dark Horse Comics in 1996. <laughs> Set shortly after Empire Strikes Back, as IG-88 ambushes Boba Fett above Tatooine as Fett tries to deliver a frozen Han Solo to Jabba the Hutt. But this same story was also seen in Shadows of the Empire and a little vignette from Galaxy Guide 5 called Dark Voyage to Tatooine. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is just nuts. They, <laughs> their ships fight above. Uh, in fact, I think there's a crate dragon in it. Now I think about oh, it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Bib Fortuna's trying to stitch Bobber up 
to try and stop paying them out credits. Uh-huh. It's it's nuts, and it's it's a pop up book. It's just <laughs> really really weird. So yeah, that's our batshit crazy book of a week. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Trav. All right. I think that, uh, you know, before we're done for today, let's just do, a, you know, our, our usual bit of housekeeping. Just want to remind our listeners that we do want your feedback, suggestions, and questions. You can use your phones to record yourselves asking um, us anything that you're wondering about. And then we, if you do that, then we can play it on one of our following episodes. Um, you can email this to us at dswarchives uh, at gmail.com or just send us a message through Discord. Up next, in the next two episodes, we will have um, a spotlight of Bell Organa that we recorded with Eric Eilerson. And we've already we recorded that last week, but we will be publishing it right after this one. Um, and that was a lot of fun, right, Trev? That one was really good. Yeah. Well, they're all really good. They're all really good. I mean, yeah, they are all are, <laughs> but it was really cool to just get, uh, you know, that was our first guest in this show, so it was really cool to just spend some time with Eric and, you know, him just uh, completely fanboying about uh, about Bell Organa, so that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, right after that, we will have, I guess, this is what we're calling my birthday episode, um, but we will be talking about the Knights of Ren, just uh, I've... I have stated how I, I really like Kylo Ren and I'm very curious to find out more about the Knights of Ren and any potential influences in Legends and anything beforehand. So we are just going to... I'm really looking forward to that one because it's it's not something that there's a lot of material about yeah. Kylo Ren or the Knights of Ren. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see, you know, I'm definitely going to have to do some research in that one. It's going to be interesting to see what we find, um, you know, what we end up discussing, what theories we have. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So, guys, so if you do have any questions about any of, well, not about Bell Organa because that is done, but if you do have any anything you want to add or any or ask us about regarding the Knights of Ren, Kylo Ren at large, then um, yeah, definitely let us know. Um, and I think that that uh, that about covers it for today's episode. We will be providing links and pictures to all the books that Trev mentioned in our Instagram and Twitter accounts. So make sure to follow. SW Archives Pod on both platforms. If you have any questions or ideas, like I just said, please send us an email at dswarchives at gmail.com or send us a note on Discord. You can also follow me on Twitter at djoxi, that is T H E J O X I I I, and follow my Instagram at the Jose Jimenez if you want to see selfies of me wearing Utini merch or pictures of my dog Mo. Trev, where can people find you? Uh, so I'm Davey Todd on Twitter. You'll find me sharing all manner of manner of weird Star Wars stuff. <laughs> or you'll just find me hanging out on Discord. But in the meantime, guys, thank you so much for listening. And uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. And that covers it. So uh, radio out. <laughs>